This is Talk on the Wild Side. I'm Rob Smith and this episode has a distinctly marshy feel to it. There's a lot of wetland-related business as we visit the extraordinary Elmley National Nature Reserve that's using ecotourism to preserve their precious habitat, home to over 45,000 birds, including lapwings and skylarks, bittern and curlew, but where you can also enjoy staying on a kind of luxury Kentish marshland safari. When we first moved here, we were waking up and watching sunrise and just thinking, this is just incredible. You can open your bifold windows and the marsh harrier, the hare, is right in front of you. And you can enjoy it, but you can also be comfortable. He's a gamekeeper turned wildlife ranger. We meet George Cooper, the Thanet countryman, so worried about the National Grid's plans to put a C-Link cable through a triple SI, he formed the Save Minster Marshes campaign. You name a bird, it's in there. And this development they want to do is going to be smack bang next to it. You know, with humming cables 24-7, 365 days a year. You know, and lights and disturbance. And we chat with Kent Wildlife Trust's first ever apprentice, Bella Sabin-Dawson, who's overcoming her eco-anxiety by getting stuck in with practical projects like the University of Kent's sustainability programme. When the big world out there is so scary, knowing that close to home someone is, is trying to make a big difference is really beneficial. All that, plus news of great crested newts and the university bio-blitz. Just pull your virtual waders on and take the plunge. Come on in, the marsh water's lovely. Marshes and wetlands really are such an essential habitat in our countryside, especially for migrating birds, which stop over along the UK shorelines to rest and feed as they move between Africa and Europe and the Arctic in spring and autumn. And one of the most special places that we have in Kent is at Elmley on the Isle of Sheppey, 3,300 acres of land that is a privately owned national nature reserve. And what makes it special, apart from the incredible variety of birds and other wildlife you can find there, is that the land is farmed and open to the public. In fact, you can actually stay there. Part of how the land is managed and funded is by having some very glamorous cabins and rooms on the site. Many of them set up so you can lie in bed with full-length windows at the foot, allowing an uninterrupted view of the land for spectacular sunrises and sunsets. Now, the reserve is owned by Gareth and Georgina Fulton, and I met up with Gareth to see what they do there. And we started off in a building called the Linhay, which is a former Victorian cattle shed. There's now a place where guests can gather to slump in front of the fire and brew themselves a cup of tea, or indeed take something a little stronger. Now, Gareth told me how the farm was actually designated a triple SI in the early 1980s, which means that since then, they haven't been able to do any arable farming or use chemical inputs on the land we did our landscape uh change uh you know over three thousand acres so it's a large site uh so that whole landscape habitat was changed in the 80s it sort of matured in the 90s and then we've been really uh stable in, in our on our stewardship of the marshes for the last 20 years really and the wildlife populations are, are now what they were pre 
uh, uh, industrial farming. Oh, okay. uh, so, w- so what does that mean? How many birds are we talking about being on the site? So we're talking like sort of three to four hundred pairs of grand, uh, lapwing, uh, four hundred plus pairs of red shank nesting. Um, you know, uh, hundreds of pairs of skylark. We've got twelve breeding pairs of marsh harrier. So there's full assembly. And everybody's getting very excited today. There's a, a white-tailed sea eagle's been spotted on the site. Yeah, the white-tailed eagle's about, and that, that was a reintroduction of the Isle of Wight, and they're spreading up the coast. But that, that moves to where the food is, right? And so it shows that marshes have got plentiful supply of geese and ducks. And, and uh, Fiona, who's with us, we did the wetland bird survey on Monday, and we, we counted about 45,000 wetland birds on the marshes. And I just want to sort of talk about you just for a moment, because mm. you actually come from a military background, don't you? You, you weren't a farmer. You don't come from a, a, that kind of a, a background at all. So how, how did you take this on? Uh, life happened, really. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I'm from rural Yorkshire, but um, uh, my previous career is in the army and I met my now wife. And we came here to diversify because Kingshill Farm was mostly derelict and lots of potential but underused it's right in the middle of the reserve so we had a the concept of creating a really sensitive tourism development like uh, they do in africa where you can have tourism in the middle of a wildlife rich area without a negative impact um, and so we've done that very slowly and gently over the last 10 years introducing people to stay um, and and try and draw an, an audience that wouldn't necessarily come to a nature reserve but how we got there was was essentially there was a uh, already a group of people coming to Elmley um, and there was RSPB at, at least part of the reserve um, for many years and, and that ended in 2013. So we wanted to sustain the public access and public visits uh, but at the same time make the make Elmley resilient as a as a uh, private business. We never really say private but it's a family run family owned farm and nature reserve and that only works if you can make it sustainable financially and and for the people running it. So uh, our concept was to diversify the income away from land management or, or include land management and then include tourism right, okay. where people are coming. And so that means you've got a whole bunch of quite nice sort of little hotel rooms and yeah. caravans and, and things that are actually scattered out on the marsh. Mm. Uh, so it is a kind of a sort of luxury safari in the Kent marshes. Yeah, I mean, we, we were waking up, when we first moved here, we were waking up and watching Sunrise and just thinking, this is just incredible. And it's Sheppey's not got the best reputation. We didn't really have that baggage of what it could be or what it should be or what it what people's concept of it was. We just thought Elmley is this unbelievable place. It feels like you're in Africa uh, much of the time in the summer with a huge sunrise and vast landscapes and full of wildlife. And, and we thought, well, why not allow people to experience that? But we didn't want it sort of hair shirted and sort of slightly um, frugal. We wanted people to have what they want, but also be in nature, be surrounded by it. So the concept is really comfortable bed, really high quality stay, lovely coffee and all the rest of it. But you can open your bifold windows and the marsh harrier, the hair is right in front of you. And you can enjoy it, but you can also be comfortable. Right, I think we should go and have a look at some of this then, see what that actually looks like. Let's go, go and have a look. So 10 years ago, this was pretty derelict. Yeah, complete. So Kingshill Farmhouse is... Um, uh, it's called Kingshill and Kingshill Farmhouse, I guess its name. James II was imprisoned here in 1688. Oh, right, okay. He's a Catholic king of England, uh-huh. fleeing to France to his Catholic friends, as William of Orange was invited to the throne. So he was on the swale, got captured, 
and they didn't know what to do with him, so they put him in the, the remote farmhouse of Elmley. This actual farmhouse? This actual house. Right, OK. Uh, and then there's a Victorian lump put on the end for the schoolmistress because we used to have a brick factory and it used to be an industrial site in, uh-huh. in Victorian times. So she lived there, farm, farm family in the back, um, and then uh, tenant farmers through the uh, 20th century, uh-huh. RSPB wardens in the 70s and 80s, uh, and then derelicts from about the 90s. And um, we plan to renovate it, plan took a long time because it's listed and it's in the middle of a national nature reserve. And uh, we finally got planning and did the work in 2018, uh-huh. finished it in spring 19, got to run it for six months, then COVID hit, so <laughs> that was fun. But it's, you know, six bed, large house, it faces a swale. It's just the most bonkers location because we'll just walk down here and see uh-huh. the view. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, no, restored an amazing building. It's a real heart of Kings Hill Farm, obviously. There we go. So this is one of what? What do you call this one's called this. the salt box? So this is a. It's not a shepherd's hut, but it's a. It's a big hut, isn't it? A cabin, yeah. A cabin, right? Okay. The, sh- the salt box is um, an old name for a. Uh, literally, a, a, a box that keeps salt in out on the marshes because it's so. Uh, we used to create salt from. Um, managing the land when the when they when they end the land they'd create salt out of the ground and store it because very valuable uh-huh. so there's a bit of bit of history to it but yeah um but this is proper i mean this is it's like a hotel isn't it you know you've gone for you've got a lovely big bed that looks immediately out through the whole end of the cabin is glass and it just looks across the marsh mm. and it's Uninterrupted, you can't see it. Well, there's there's pylons right on the horizon, but there's nothing in the in the foreground here. This is landscape as you would have seen it two hundred years ago. Yeah, or more. I mean, this this is timeless, really. This this landscape of the coastal marshes, um, and 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 full of wildlife that there would have been there two hundred three hundred years ago, which is even more rare now yeah, than yeah, landscape. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So people, you come and you lie in bed here and. What's, what, which way are we facing? So the sun yeah, rises yeah, over the there, sunrise. isn't it? You watch the sun come up in the face morning. the sunrise, yeah. And, and that's huge. And we often say, we've all got curtains and blinds and things, but we often say don't close them because actually seeing sunrise over the marshes is really special and you can always sleep later. Um, but yeah, no, it's got in showers, kitchen and outdoor baths and fire pits. All the mod cons. All the mod cons. It's lovely. And then if we come around the corner here, I'm just going to walk around here and just give a little tap. It's quite breezy and wet today, but... Outside the back door here, we've got a beautiful copper bath for a yeah. posh, posh jacuzzi yeah. to, sit, to sit in to uh, commune with nature yeah. <laughs> while well, you try- clean the mud out your toes. But even with this, we try and do so. We try and do a bath because it uses less water mm-hmm. and is more uh, friendly to the you know wildlife around it than, than having a big hot tub using energy and, and, and having to change the water every time the guests change it. And of course, the, the, the whole point of all of this is the fact that this is what pays for that. That these huts, the income you get from that, yeah. allows you as a business yeah. to manage the land for nature. Yeah, and, and people. And so that is, and employ local people as well. And so it's pointless being an island just for wildlife on its own with no engagement because how will people value it and therefore how will it be protected and so it's all about that balance of people relating and engaging with wildlife which is really important for our health mental health and physical health as well as uh, society and so it's engaging local people whether they want to come and bird watch or be employed it's engaging people from further further afield to get out of cities and, and have a bit of uh, wellness in, in nature 
and then also for wildlife itself because there's, there's an intrinsic value to all these birds um, and if Elmley's not here there's a huge number of birds without habitat to use and it is a, it's a it's a beautiful wild spot and as we look across here so just talk me through some of the birds we can see in the yeah, so on, on the, the ponds, in front of us. on the ponds we've got uh, just in front of the ponds we've got lots of widgeon, which are a, a, a duck that breeds in the Arctic and winters on the east east UK coast. And um, there's over ten thousand of them here at the moment, so that's a real spectacle to see that many birds in the air, that quantity. Uh, a few others got some tufted duck, which are also winter migrants, and then all over the marshes you can see them fluttering about a lapwing. Um, it's our sort of bellwether bird. We use the lapwing as the indicator of how to manage the reserve because they're in the middle of the food chain. So if we get it right for the lapwing, we're getting it broadly right for the marsh harriers at the top or the white-tailed eagle now at the top and, and the invertebrates in the soil what the lapwing feed on. So, so they're, they're a really good indicator of a healthy habitat here. And um, yeah, there are lots of them. And as we look out, there's a lot of water that yeah. I can see. Is, is that water there year round or is that because the tide's in at the moment? Or No, that's fresh water. The tide stays the other side of the sea defences. Um, and that water is, is basically rainfall. Um, and we sometimes in dry winters pump some more water on. Um, but we're a seasonally drying wetland. So very wet in the winter that attracts and creates habitat for wintering birds. And then what makes it special for breeding ground nesting birds through the spring is that water starts evaporating and that creates a muddy edge and it allows the birds to nest and the chicks to have very close proximity to food because they want to be in the muddy bits eating the coronamids and the, and the, the worms and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so that will then com- almost completely dry out by midsummer. The grass grows and it can be grazed and whatnot and then that um and do you that put, cycle when you say graze is that sheep is that cattle what what do you put on there? predominantly cattle right. um because they we they just create the right grass structure for ground nesting birds so the skylarks the red shank the lapwing they're like an open landscape but they need tufts of grass to nest in mm-hmm. or around and also that creates the microdiversity for um insects invertebrates and whatnot so you get a whole and that farming side of it, because, you know, we, we talked a fair yeah. bit about the fact that you're getting people on to, to yeah. come here and spend their money actually on the site. But yeah. the farming side of it, is that an important part uh, financially or is that more important kind of emotionally to how you use the land and how you manage the land? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the primary driver for grazing is for habitat management. Right. And here now we've sort of transitioned to the farming is 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 hugely important and everyone needs to eat and we feel that the livestock grazed here are primarily habitat engineers you know the grazing of the sward is is key for the wildlife interest but also we want to provide high quality food and we've got a range of of farmers near us who who provide livestock to help graze the marshes because there's a lot of cattle out there you know six seven hundred over three thousand acres and so um it's definitely not a um, an individual effort and that those guys are producing really high quality meat um, that is you know sustainably produced and ethically produced um, so so it's a really important part of it because grazing marshes and these marshes it's a beautiful wilderness but a man-made landscape and that's a really interesting facet actually of that our rewilding scenario is to allow the marshes to go back to salt marsh but we're in a, a funny dilemma at the moment where we want more salt marsh but 
there's no replacement for the scale of Elmley of the wet freshwater grazing marshes with all the wildlife interests. So we're trying to balance those two needs. But uh, yeah, the farming element is is really important to the the wildlife interest, and it's it's mainly cattle because they do the best job for the sward. Also with us was Fiona McKinnon, who's a volunteer warden. She spends much of her time guiding people through the wildlife. And she told me that while she was first interested in the reserve's birds, that soon changed over time. So birds started to be, but actually Elmley is so much more than just birds. So it's as the seasons go through, you move through moths, through um amphibians through dragonflies back to the birds again uh, to the fauna and flora so it's a very although it might look very flat and very monoculture actually it's got this huge richness going through and through the season so there's always something to be excited about now the thing we're getting excited about here we're literally outside the uh, the cabin that i've just been uh, having a look at and um this twig branch stick that's just hanging over the fence owls roost here that's right so um one of the things that we're very lucky at elmley to have is we have four of the five british species of owls um here the only one that we don't have is your twitterwoo your tawny owl because we don't have enough trees mature trees for those they're more of a woodland bird but we have um resident barn owls uh, which are those beautiful white heart-shaped birds that you see sort of romantically going across the, the uh-huh. farmland. We've got little owls, which are an introduced species uh, from a couple of hundred years ago. We have visiting short-eared owls in the winter and over much of the early spring, and we have a large number of those uh, here this year, up to 30 at the beginning of the, the winter. Uh, and we have very, luckily, we have long-eared owls that are r- resident here and have believe bred here in in the recent past so when you come to stay elmley one of the absolute joys is being so close to nature Ah. and so close to owls and here we have a perfect so and as we're looking here under this particular stick i can see probably at least a dozen owl pellets pellets. yes so can you tell from the pellet what kind of owl so um it it's these ones look probably they're going to be um they look yes you can you have to pick them out a bit and these ones are a bit degraded because of the rain we've had recently mm-hmm. but i would say that these are barn owl ones barn owls we've got a pair of bar- nesting barn owls just down the hill in the box down there and i think they've come up here they've f- hunting along the um the edges of the water and the sort of rebeds and they're coming back to uh, digest their food and then the the byproduct of what they don't want to eat they don't want to bother digesting comes back up as a pellet a bit like a cat's hairball yeah. and that's what we've got here so these are fascinating and you can dry them out and you can pick through them and find out what's been eaten and what's around um so do you do, you do that yourself from time to we time we do we do it with the children uh-huh. that come in we do various um children activities and this is one of the favorite ones they love it don't they, they do they do question to begin with whether you're actually dissecting poo uh-huh. in which case we have to say no this is regurgitating no this is food. vomit <laughs> <laughs> sounds so much better doesn't it um, and it's fascinating you start seeing small vole bones and skulls and um maybe even occasionally a little beat but that's more unusual um l- lots of beetles so in the little owl ones that we pick up we find lots of beetles uh shells and things like that so it's really reflecting the food that they're eating and gives us a good idea of what 
uh, what's around and our small mammal population as well. But and what, what time of day would they tend to do that? You know, so, so if you were staying here, oh look, there's a robin just oh, hopped up on the I branch next to us here. But you're, you're, so I mean, you really are right in yes, the nature yes. here, aren't you? So if you were sitting here, would it would it be in the middle of the night and you wouldn't necessarily so, see the owl, or would you actually get to see dusk, them? After dusk, they would come in and be here. So if you're sitting quietly, having your your um, your evening drink and maybe roasting a marshmallow or two, the birds will come incredibly close. They're mm-hmm. used to people. Uh, as long as people don't go, let the birds come to you. Don't go to them, mm-hmm. and they will come in. So you'll you'll be sitting quietly, just a, a low noise. The birds are used to that, and you'll suddenly find them sitting beside you or um, flying through, looking at you. Last year um, in, in summer, we had one of the long-eared owls spent an awful lot of time in the courtyard where we were just now, um, hunting for little beetles and things. And, and people were sitting there having their evening meal, and this beautiful owl rare British owl be flying around their heads um, uh, with occasionally stopping to look at them by sitting on the fence so I can see really from your close. face you quite like it around here I do I'm a bit, yes I think anyone that spends any time at Elmley um, falls a little bit in love with the owls and they are very special here now obviously not everyone can afford to stay on the site and even if you did it would only be as an occasional treat so what about the rest of us well since the reserve covers some 3300 acres the best way is to actually drive through it and to watch the nature out of the car window particularly with the entry road it's 2 miles through the and you as soon as you enter you're straight into the marshes and it's unusual elmley it's very remote but it's also dual carriageway access and so as soon as you're off that fast road, we try to change people's mentality of driving rather than racing along a dual carriageway. It's a gravel road, it's loose, it's a couple of holes, but we do that to slow people down. And then you're straight into the reserve and it's two mile sort of sinuous drive through and the birds will stay incredibly close to the road because they're, they're, they're habituated, they're used to the traffic or the, the traffic, the, the cars going in and out. Um, they will stay really close because they don't see the shape of a car as a threat. As soon as you get out and they see the human form, they're away. Right. And it's really important that we get that balance right. So, if so you let everybody know as they come in. You have a little chat with them to let them know. Exactly. Stay in the car, just look out the window. So like a yeah. safari, if you're going to, yeah. I don't know, Woburn or one of those kind of places, yeah. that you don't want to get attacked by a lion. It's not quite the same concept here, but the way to keep the nature and the wildlife happy is for you to stay in the vehicle and just observe it yeah there's not a lot that will eat you i guess if you're a small child you might get taken by the eagle but um i uh, no. but it, i was going to say serengeti and you said woven but you know whatever <laughs> um i was uh, i was giving a tour to someone last april and they um we came up very early in the morning right in the middle you know start of the breeding season and it's probably the highest compliment ever been paid but they had been to amazing wetland in South America called the Pantanal. And it's, you know, sort of half the size of the UK and it's just unbelievably vast, filled with wildlife. And they said that the drive along our road from Kingshill Farm back up towards the entrance and the, all the, this is when it's packed with breeding waders and they're all calling everywhere and there's harriers and hares everywhere. And they, 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 they were honestly just said it was as good, if not better, than travelling all the way to the Pantanal to see the breeding birds. That was pretty pretty blown over by that you can see the, some t- the teal moving out the ducks out moving out the back there. so as we're driving along here every couple of hundred yards or so 
there's somebody just parked up. This is what people do. You come out and you sit in the car and you gaze at the yeah, gaze at what's going on. Yeah, I mean, as Fiona said before, if you let the wildlife come to you, you see a lot more. And certain people who come regularly sort of like certain spots where they'll get a view and others just see something and can pull over to the side. As long as you're not blocking the road, it's great because you get to stop and enjoy watch these lapwing just feeding in the in the field here there's a curlew just out here two curlew actually just on the all right let's just stop here for a moment then we'll turn the engine off so yeah so we've made the curlew a bit of a a bit of a a a focus in the last year or so we've we don't have breeding curlew here but we have a large wintering population and um but we've decided that it's worth we've got such a prolific population of waders because the conditions are right for them that it might make sense to try and establish curlew here as a breeding population because we think they might be quite successful mm-hmm. uh, in the lowlands of the rest of the UK there's less than 250 pairs left breeding because the habitat's not right there's too much predation uh, there's land use impacts with silage cutting or whatever that's making them not produce chicks they're very long lived so they're very really just cottoned on to the fact that they're going to be extinct as a lowland breeding bird if we don't get a move on and help so we are helping with uh, rearing eggs relocated from areas in the north yorkshire moors where they're going to get disturbed or trampled on or, or on, on big on the pennine way on the coastal footpaths um they're moved there the skylark just raising here too they're, they're they're brought down as eggs we rear them here and then we raise them in pens and they feed themselves so we just have to feed them and keep them warm and once they went during their you know adolescent period from once they hatch before they can fly they sort of imprint on elmley as being their home and we know from the other waders that they're very sight faithful and some of the lapwing who we've ringed and tagged come back to nest within a meter or two of where they were born wow and so we're hoping that's the case with Kolu and, and the conditions. We've got enough insect life for them in the grasslands to, to feed their young. So how, how early in that as a programme are you? We had our first breeding season last spring. Those birds, we fledged 32 out of 40 eggs. And those birds, of which the survival rate won't be high initially, you know, most birds, 50% are lost in the first winter because it's so hard for them in the first winter, but... Of those birds, we think they'll two or three years gestation before they're ready to breed. And so it's that recruitment rate in 20, 25, 26, 27. Right, okay. So the curly that we can see that's out there and doing yep. its thing, you're hopeful that that will be a breeding bird in the next couple of seasons? Yeah, these two we can see here aren't tagged. So we, oh, there's a lapwing displaying their sign of spring on the marshes. That's setting up a territory to say, this is my patch. Amazing. That's a real morale lifter after a long winter. Um, but yeah, those two birds there are wild curly because they don't have the leg tags on that we would have put on them. So they will move off to probably, could be Finland, could be other parts of Scandinavia um, to breed. Um, our birds, are jo- have, we've got two that are GPS tagged and they've joined the local flock. So they will move around the swale, but we're hoping when those birds in April go back up north, ours might remain. Well, that was great. We've sort of like actually been out and had a, a, a proper look around the place. I mean, the weather's not <laughs> the weather's not been lovely today, no. but actually, this is perfect, isn't it? When it's like this, yeah, yeah. I mean, twelve degrees, 
bit of drizzle, the birds absolutely love it. You think that all those birds that should, you know, breed in the Arctic, this is balmy and they've got access to food. So they're, they're, they're loving it, hence there's so many about. And when you, you come on to the site, and we didn't talk about it earlier, but when you come on, you meet Di at the gate. Everybody who comes on to the reserve, you have a little conversation with them to tell them how to behave with the cars? Yeah, so we've got uh, we've got people who come and stay overnight. It might be a couple of nights, um, and, and we do events and things as well in the summer. But majority of the people come in the winter, um, want to see lots of birds, lots of wetland birds, and and owls and and, and harriers and whatnot. Uh, but Elm is very open, exposed site, and to do that properly, what we've learned is that if we can um, talk to people at the gate, give them a really warm welcome, give them a map so they know where they're going, but also ask them to perhaps stay in their cars along the two mile entry road, you can kind of do your own birding safari. Um, it's just we find if as soon as you get out of the car the birds fly they waste energy and then the next people don't really see anything because the birds have moved out of sight and so it's just about um all of our visitors helping each other to have a great time by um some really simple steps but we've just found that management is the best thing for people but also the best thing for wildlife and, and it's a delicate balance to tread and how does it fit in with the other landowners around you do you have conversations with them you know things are changing in terms of um cap has gone away effectively that subsidy signed it so so are other people looking at you and seeing how you're doing it and trying to copy what you're doing here yeah i mean i don't want to be too arrogant to say they're all going to copy us but they'll probably pick some good bits and ignore some of the mistakes we've made along the way (laughs) which everyone does but uh yeah i mean uh one of my drivers was really um, it's incredible privilege to sort of help run elmley and uh and 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 live in this landscape really and a lot of our neighbors are you know still arable farming there's marshland there's lots of fruit growing it's incredibly challenging for farmers at the moment particularly the fruit growers which are not getting paid what it costs to produce apples and we go to the shop and it's a south african apple and they're growing kentish apples next door it's bonkers but their future lies in having a blend of uh, and probably more environmentally friendly practices around their food production because you still need to eat right so they still need to be there but we want we're, we're sort of getting together as a, a cluster of farms along the whole swale estuary uh to try and solve these challenges together it's not a sort of oh come and look at elmley and do all do this because no, everyone's situation is different and the habitats are different but by working together or each finding a path through and helping each other probably help that transition and and lots of people are now looking really seriously at how they change their uh, landscapes around them on their with their farms or or larger holdings um to be to do more for wildlife we've gone from uh having a wonderful reserve and landscape but with employing two people and no visitor interaction or facilities at all um you know we've set up a community interest company um which is a not-for-profit which has enabled day visits to continue because without it there would have been no funding at all we don't get any funding for to be open to the public or any of that so that's enabled it we've got 850 friends of Elmley who are regulars who come up all the time and we've sustained sort of 20,000 other day visitors a year which is great uh we've got we can now sleep uh 28 30 people throughout the year and in the summer some more year round and a team of 25 people employed locally and I think that's one of the most amazing things is some of the guys who live in Rushenden and Coimbra and, and Minster on the island, um, didn't even know Elmley existed. And, and, but now their career and their future is, is linked and they, they come to work every day in an amazing place and love it. Uh, and and we've we, and have, uh, linked into the marshes, which I just find incredible. 
and on a personal level, do you quite like it? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I do love it. Yeah, there's nothing. I mean, Monday, for example, is, is so special. Bright blue sky, winter birds, the highest tide of the year, six six half meter tides, and the marsh is full with forty five thousand birds. And if you can't be moved by that, you're a pretty cold heart. So yeah, no, I love it. Many thanks to Gareth Fulton and Fiona McKinnon for giving us so much time and showing us around the Elmley Nature Reserve. If you want to find out any more about what they do there, then elmleynaturereserve.co.uk is the place to look. If you subscribe and become a friend of Elmley, and hundreds of people do, uh, then it's effectively a year-long season ticket, so you can then come and go as often as you like and watch the landscape change through the seasons. Just a couple of little advisory notes, though, if you do want to visit Do be aware that the reserve is closed to the public on Mondays and Tuesdays, so don't drive out there without checking first. And secondly, no dogs are allowed, even well-behaved ones, even on a lead, because making sure that the wildlife is left as undisturbed as possible is their highest priority. Now, you may remember back in episode six of the podcast, I visited the University of Kent, where I had an excellent ramble through the campus with Emma Mason, who's their sustainability coordinator. We looked at the ponds next to the biggest nightclub on the campus, which also happened to be a perfect spot for really healthy population of great crested newts and a whole bunch of other stuff besides. If you haven't heard it, go back, take a listen. It's really worthwhile. Anyway, among the places we stopped and looked at was a freshly planted orchard of 300 fruit nut trees to celebrate the university's upcoming 60th birthday jubilee in 2025. Well, while I was there, I also got the chance to have a chat with Bella Sabin Dawson, who happens to be Kent Wildlife Trust's first ever apprentice. She's their new education and well-being apprentice, and she was also a student at the University of Kent beforehand. She is loving her new role and is especially keen to help people use practical knowledge as a way of combating the very natural eco-anxiety that a lot of us feel. So I started by asking her how she'd come to be in this role. I've just always been passionate about wildlife, always been passionate about the environment. Um, I started my journey here as a wildlife conservation student and then transferred onto environmental social science. Once I realised how um, anthropocentric climate change and biodiversity loss is um and then so what, what do you mean by that um well you know wildlife conservation is a complex issue but humans are always inevitably at the root of that and so i think once i realized that i felt like my efforts would be better put to use focusing on human issues right okay if you can sort the people out then the wildlife <laughs> will sort itself out we hope they come hand in hand because yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were quite miserable about it all for for a spell absolutely it's always difficult once you start learning about the hard hard truth the hard facts um about you know climate change biodiversity loss everything that's going on in the world is so you know interdisciplinary and interlinked it can be very overwhelming um and daunting and so it's difficult to process those emotions Mm. especially if you're studying it full time it can be um quite a lot to deal with how are you feeling now 
I'm feeling better. I think it's, it's something that um, you, you manage to learn how to cope with over time. Um, but I came across the term eco-anxiety when I was in my second year here at uni. Um, and I kind of heard the term and I was like, oh my goodness, this is me. I could relate so clearly with that term. Um, and from that point, I then reached out and we found a group of students that also felt the same way um, and really connected with the community that empathised with those feelings. Um, being a part of a student cohort, you know, there's a lot of people studying these things now um, and a lot of people struggling with the same difficult emotions. And of course, the thing is, it, it's not just about forming a support group and holding hands and saying, you know, we can all make ourselves feel better. Yeah. If you actually do something, then you can actually make stuff better and that then makes you feel better. Yes, absolutely. So once you've found those people, I mean, you can absolutely do it on your own. But, you know, I find personally having that community of people, that network, we can then say, recognise these emotions, recognise that we're all feeling overwhelmed and then say, OK, guys, you know, we've we've accepted the fact that things are hard um, and we've now come together and we can create meaningful action um, looking forward and thinking about the steps that we can take. So given all that and that you're you're doing your apprenticeship with the Wildlife Trust now, <laughs> what's your advice for people who might be listening who have got eco anxiety who are deeply worried about where we're going how things are you know headed what can they do it's always a tricky one and it does depend on every person as an individual because you are going to have different ways of managing your emotions yourself um i would say try and find people who are empathizing who feel similar feelings because um even just having the you know opportunity to talk to somebody about these kind of emotions can really give you a sense of relief um you know for some people listening to music just taking your mind off everything um distracting yourself with a tv show or getting out in nature for a walk um anything that will fully give you a breather from these environmental issues i think a lot of people either if you're working in the sector or if you're just really interested and trying to you know make an impact in your own way in your own free time you feel this pressure to constantly be learning as much as you can and taking as much on board as you possibly can because that's you you feel like that's your responsibility um as somebody who is environmentally minded but it is so important that you take a break from everything um and make sure that you have some time to switch off and wind down so that you can you know have a little mental reset every now and then um and have a bit of a breather but also one thing that I can really recommend is try and find positive news Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really big thing that helps me I think you know finding Instagram pages you know it's all over social media we're bombarded with negative stuff all the time finding the positive stuff as well is really important Um, so maybe even switching on post notifications for certain pages one guy I follow on, on Instagram and TikTok Sam Bentley is absolutely incredible he collects all of these positive environmental news stories collects them all up for you and then you know presents them in such right, a magical so I'll, way. I'll take a look so Sam Bentley yes. will look him out and of course people should listen to the talk on the wild side podcast absolutely all sorts of good stuff there and so we're still here in the newly planted orchard I mean does this help you seeing this kind of thing yes absolutely you know it's nice seeing physical positive change um, and steps towards action you're being at the University of Kent as a student and knowing that the university sustainability team and the grounds team are listening that they're taking action um, and you know really making a big effort to um, make the campus more nature friendly more sustainable is so reassuring Um, it it makes a big difference when when the big world out there is so scary knowing that close to home someone is is trying to make a big difference is really beneficial.
Bella Sabin Dawson there, Kent Wildlife Trust's first ever apprentice and a real breath of fresh air, isn't she? Now, accompanying us on our trip, we also had a current student of conservation at the university, Sam Madison, who's in his second year. And there were two things that I wanted to have a chat with Sam about. The BioBlitz survey, which has been carried out at the university campus for the last three years, and newts. Because newts, particularly great crested ones, form quite a big part of the conservation studies at the University of Kent. And we stopped by their newt research ponds, which are in fact globally famous, if you know a thing or two about great crested newts, that is, since they have been running continuous studies there for over 30 years. I do love my UK wildlife and my rewilding. Um, but the newts is something that everybody gets involved with. Um, all the students in wildlife conservation at the University of Kent will come out here in their first year and uh, learn to survey the newts to trap them, record them, um, and use that for use that data for population analysis, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Right. But it is lovely to know that we've got uh, you know such a, an amazing protected species on campus and that it's uh, it's thriving here. It's okay. great. So we'll come on to what your favourite thing is in a minute then, yes. but we're stood by a pond here, which I think you helped construct last year and has already got great crested newts in it. So it's <laughs> it's like, it's working. Yes, it certainly is. Yeah, we've got quite a lot of ponds on campus. We've been past a few this morning, um, but the, the ability of the newts to spread out and make the most use of our, our ponds on campus is, is really amazing. And yeah, it just shows that the, the differences uh, that we are able to make just by creating uh, novel habitats for these, these sort of species. They do really make the most of them. And just talk me through briefly how, you know, the project that's been running here for so long, looking at newts, you actually trap the newts on a regular basis and hook them out and have a look at them. Yeah, so that's run by Professor Richard Griffiths, who is uh, an absolute world-leading authority on great crested newts. Um, so he's been running the research site here he got permission to do it about 30 35 years ago long before my time um, so he's been running it since and yeah so every every week during surveying season um, which runs you know mostly throughout the year but obviously that's outside of breeding times so don't want to catch them when they're trying to breed um, yeah every week uh, on Thursday evening they'll set the traps um, which are just simple bottle traps they don't harm the newts in any way the newts swim into them on their own accord and then early Friday morning they will pull them up um, we get great crested newts here, as well as our other two native species, which are smooth newts and palmate newts. And they record each and every newt that comes out. And for all the great crested newts, they actually take pictures of their belly patterns, which are unique to the individuals, like a oh, fingerprint, right. like a fingerprint to a human. Okay. So you can take these pictures side by side and go, ah, yes, we've caught the same newt this week and the next week, and see which ponds it's been moving between, and track it across its life, which is absolutely fascinating data. So one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, Sam, is the the, the bio blitz. Tell yes. me about that. Yes, the, the University of Kent BioBlitz is an annual event. Um, I suppose to start off for those who don't know what a BioBlitz is, it's a, it's a 24-hour period in which you survey an area. So in our case, that is the lovely 300 hectares of the University of Kent campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you survey for as many species as possible. So in our case, we carried out 20 different surveys, everything from newts to bats to plants to invertebrates to birds. Um, and we have everybody, all our volunteers and members of the community. Last year we had an astounding 469 people in attendance. Um, everybody goes out on the surveys and records as much wildlife as they can. And how, how much did you find? How many different species are there? So our species tally for the University of Kent campus last year was 322 species, which was absolutely amazing. Mm. About 40% of those were insect species, um, a lot of moths uh, we found. 
and then another 40% roughly were our plants, um, you know, our native British wildflowers. Um, we, we carry the bioblitz out in the summer, so mm. this last year just gone, it was uh, very end of May 2023. And this is an ongoing one, you're going to do it every May going forwards, that's the idea, so you can actually get kind of a, a picture over time? Yes, so this May just gone was our third annual bioblitz. Um, and each year we aim to grow it as more of a, a you know, it's, it's such a flagship event at the university that we have so many people come in from outside the university and students and staff that we try and grow it not only in numbers of volunteers and people who get involved, um, but also our survey effort. So yes, we're going ahead next year. We hope to find even more species, of course. And, and have you noticed any differences looking at the data that since the university has been taking sustainability more seriously, are you seeing more biodiversity on the campus? Yes, well, we've only got three years of data from the BioBit specifically. Um, we have found a lot of very interesting species that you might not expect to find. We found some rare species of moths. We found um, some really fascinating plants as well as obviously, you know, the usual native British mammals. We found hedgehogs, badgers, foxes, uh, pygmy and common pipistrelle bats, uh, which is really amazing to see them. Um, three years probably isn't enough time to, no. to say for sure that we're having... Uh, significant positive impact but we can say for sure we have all these amazing species on our campus. Now if I say the word gamekeeper what pops into your mind? It may well have some negative connotations. You might have some kind of Victorian notions of an angry man in a deerstalker hat shooting poachers and poisoning anything that isn't a pheasant or a grouse. You might think of Danny, champion of the world, and maybe have some hazy romantic notions of a kind of face-off between good and evil. People often have all sorts of strong reactions to the notion of a gamekeeper, especially in the world of nature conservation. But... The reality is that because gamekeepers are responsible for maintaining habitats where pheasants, partridges, hare, deer and grouse can all thrive, looking after the woods and hedgerows and fields in which the game birds and animals live is crucial. And between them, Britain's gamekeepers look after more countryside than all the national parks and nature reserves put together. Now, George Cooper is a gamekeeper. He works the land at Abbey Farm in Minster in Thanet. And he also recently set up the campaign group Save Minster Marshes because he is frightened of the impact that the National Grid's plans for building a new converter station and the cabling and the pylons that go with it for the proposed Sealink project. He's worried about what the impact is going to be on the wildlife there. For George, a healthy landscape with a real diversity of wildlife also provides the best conditions for his ducks and pheasants. So he's created a kind of unexpected alliance with all sorts of environmental groups locally to try and prevent anything being done that will damage the countryside he loves. I met up with George on an early blustery morning in a field in the middle of the Minster Marshes farmland. 53 years I've been coming here as a lad fishing and then 25 years as the gamekeeper on Abbey Farm. And as a gamekeeper, what does that mean? What do you actually do? Well, I, um, I manage the birds that we release, so pheasants and ducks. So we get them in at seven weeks old and I look after them and nurture them and feed them and water them and just look after them, basically. Right. But it also involves, you know, I'm here every day, so I record the wildlife, encouraging, making it good for game birds 
and waterfowl makes it good for everything. Like I probably put out half a ton of food every time I come out and probably half of that is ate by the wild population of birds. Now, does that make you unusual as a gamekeeper that you like that? <laughs> you actually you want to encourage the wildlife? Not through my experience. Most gamekeepers started like I started when it was legal. Most people I know that got into bird watching or birds started by bird egging when it was legal and then it got you an interest and we was always out in the countryside looking for birds nests and it makes you interested in wildlife and so most of them start from that and then they get into shooting and then they become professional gamekeepers but they take that with them through their lives and most of the wildlife that they interact with every day doesn't cause them any problems it's there but doing what they do like on the dry it's not so bad here because we've got water but on another estate i work there's no there's no water no standing water so we put water out every day for our pheasants which all the other birds have got access to and they've got access to the food so it makes it easier for them so the field that we're stood in here, just describe it for me, uh, because I'm not a I'm not a land expert, as it were. Um, it's quite it's it's very low lying. It's very you know there is water in the fields here. It's not the time of year for crops to be growing, but there's no bare earth anywhere. No, there's no bare earth because nowadays most farmers put what's called a catch crop on. So it's planted after harvest. We plant it directly into the stubbles, so we don't plough. There's minimal cultivation or no cultivation. So it's drilled directly into the stubbles. And then that grows and that takes the nitrates out of the soil, stops soil erosion, puts organic matter back into the um, back into the soil. So the soils, it's actual better soil structure. You're not destroying the worms because you're not ploughing the seagulls on eating them. A lot of the invertebrates and that survive. So it's absolutely perfect for wildlife. And that means that you do get an amazing amount of bird life down here. And it's birds are really your thing, isn't it? So just give us a well, list of some of the, some of the wildlife that you, you see when you... Because you're down here pretty much every day, aren't you? Oh, every, every time I come down, I would probably count 40 species of birds. We've got beavers. I see slow worms, grass snakes, common lizards, water voles, minks, sadly. But that's a, you know something that we need to get on. Every day is different. Some days you can come down here and there's next to nothing. Other days there's curlew, golden plover, uh, birds of prey. We've got every species of owl down here. Obviously the short-eared owls only come in the autumn and the winter, but we've got resident long-eared owls, barn owls, tawny owls, little owls, some of them nest here. You name a bird and we've probably got it down here. And as we were here, I mean, literally as we, we just stopped here so we kind of putted out on the the little four-wheel drive vehicle the atv to get through there because it's quite muddy on the uh, on the farm track but we stopped here and there were some skylarks yeah loads of skylarks we've rung more skylarks on abbey farm than anyone in kent since 2021 67 skylarks we've ringed which is a fantastic number and do you put that down to the way that the land is being farmed because a decade ago they they farmed it in, in a different way here didn't they yeah, it's definitely better how they're farming it now for wildlife. The catch crop, I think, is one of the major things. Leaving the overwintering stubbles is really good because it leaves certain amount of bits of wheat for birds to feed on and gives them cover. 
the extra catch crop that they drill in it gives it more cover so the birds can feed out there all day without being predated. It's, it's fantastic for wildlife. And as we look across the field at the moment, I mean, we, well, we saw literally hundreds of cormorants flying out, didn't we, earlier Thousands, on? yeah. How important to you is, is this piece of land here? This, piece, this area, East Kent, I think is majorly important for migrating birds. We're ever so close to Europe, so a lot of the migrating birds obviously follow the coast down to Peggle Van Sandwich Bay, which is literally probably not even half a mile away from us here. And they work their way down here to cross to Europe. So if this is all developed, where are they going to feed before they cross the channel? You know, it's we I I call I what saw a bird through my binoculars, it's called a wheat ear. And um, I didn't really notice when I see it in the binoculars, but later on when I checked my photographs, it had a coloured ring on its leg. So I researched it and it had come from Skokholm Island in Pembrokeshire, where they're doing a wheat ear ringing project. That's the only second bird, ring bird that they've had recorded and both have been in Kent. We've rung nearly 30% of the lesser white throats in Kent last year and nearly 15% of the Chetty's warblers you know and we do it once a week we're not doing it every day we've caught we've ringed 1200 birds in three months without the other species that we've ringed at night like woodcock and skylarks and other birds it's you know people look at this landscape and think there's nothing here it's just a monoculture it's full of wildlife that you don't see do people find it strange that because you're so passionate about the wildlife that's here, but you're a gamekeeper and you you set up the land for shooting, um, and lots of people might think there's a, a contradiction in that. Well, a lot of people do. I don't find there's a contradiction because I've always been a country person and I love wildlife. Maybe there is a little bit. Sometimes I ask that question myself. And obviously, now I'm older, I don't shoot as much as I used to. I still do my shooting and that but I think it goes cap in hand conservation and gamekeeping I know a lot of people can't see that but I could guarantee you if I took you on any shoot through this country which I've had the privilege to go on many some of the biggest estates in this country most shooting estates have got a lot of wildlife because they're undisturbed because they don't let people walk everywhere and let their dogs run everywhere they feed the birds they control the um, predator species, now they even control them on reserves like the RSPB and that, they've controlled birds that predate on rare birds and that, it's no different, you know, I just, you know, we could probably change our name to rangers, you know, and then people, it might be better, if pe- you know, for people if we called ourselves rangers, but I've got no problem being, I'm quite proud to be a gamekeeper to be perfectly honest. Now as we look just behind us here, so across the, the fields, there's a big patch of woodland and there's yep, a huge right, hedgerow yep. that goes that way. Yep. That in itself is massively important, isn't it? Yeah, that's a triple SI. So that's teeming with wildlife, which is basically becoming an island. You've got the old Richborough so-called green energy park to one side of it. You've got the treatment works and the anaerobic digester and now a grid stability building that's going to be built and possibly if they can't drill the cables underneath the triple si they're going to have to open trench it which should destroy it now that's got 
a heronry. It's got nesting egrets. It's got some birds that I can't really mention. <laughs> but it's, you name a bird, it's in there. It's undisturbed because you can't access it because it's so overgrown. But it's good because people can't access it. It's really, really important. It links Minster Marshes and the Stour Valley to Sandwich Bay and Pegwell Bay and then on to Europe for migrating birds. It's really, really important area. And this development they want to do is going to be smack bang next to it, you know, with humming cables 24-7, 365 days a year, you know, and lights and disturbance. And the actual physical size of the building, as we look across the field there, you're saying that they've put a couple of boreholes in to test for, for the levels. water levels. Funnily enough, in the marsh, yeah. <laughs> there's quite a lot of water here, isn't there? Yeah. But the, the physical building itself is going to be massive. Oh, huge. It's going to be, for want of a better word, it's going to look like a huge, great big football stadium. It's 100 foot high, so 100 foot high, and it's going to be nine hectares. So that equates to 22 football pitches. And then they're putting super-sized pylons, which are going to run perpendicular to the River Stour, straight across the River Stour, which we have massive problems with birds like swans crashing into them i mean two miles upstream from where we are now in 2003 179 mute swans were killed in one go you go on the marsh now and you hardly see any swans the numbers aren't there anymore and now you want to put more cables across the marsh there's going to be like a fishing net stretched across the river stour so as a as a final thought then um i know you want to save Minster Marshes, that's the campaign, isn't yeah. it? What do you want people to do? Well, I'd like people to sign the petition. The more vote, the more signatures we get on the petition, the more power we've got. Get involved, really. Read about it on Facebook and get wild and look at the um, Kent Wildlife Trust site and the RSPB. Everyone's trying to fight it, but we need people behind us to stop this. We don't want to stop it because supposedly green energy we need green energy but this is all down to cost instead of running the cable in at Pegwell Bay they could run the cable into the old Dungeness power station site which is on the beach it's got a massive area that's unused there but it's down to the cost of putting the cable there this is all down to cost plus National Grid make a fortune at the Nemo link at Richborough so they obviously want this to link in to the undersea cable that goes to Europe. This is all about money. It's a private company and they want to pay their shareholders. You know, through my experience over this, which has been over a year now, I've been trying to do something about this. They don't care about the wildlife. It's all about money. That's all it's about. And, you know, you've, this is the first time you've ever been down there. And it's not a particularly good day for birds, for whatever reason, that's how it goes. But, you know, it is an amazing place and it's pretty remote for East Kent. You know, Fannet is getting more and more development developed. This is one of the wildest places in Fannet that's left. Once they build that, that's it, spoiled. And then what's to stop them once they've built that, carrying on, taking more of the marsh? Oh, we want to put more battery storage. What people have got to realise, this is the third cable that's come into Pegwell Bay. They've put the Nemo link through. There's rumours that they've got to restring the Nemo link that was only put in in 2018. So they've got to put bigger cables on it. You know, 
they haven't got a plan of what to do for the future. They're just adding bits on all the time. And this, this is wrong. You know, this isn't just here. This is in Suffolk and Norfolk and Essex and Scotland. It's all over the country that people are trying to fight National Grid. You know, and we need more and more people behind us from all over the country to try and stop this. George Cooper, gamekeeper at Abbey Farm on Minster Marshes there. You can hear the passion in his voice, can't you? And he's far from being alone in his concerns. The local MP, Sir Roger Gale, is backing the campaign. I'm hoping that we're going to be talking with Sir Roger in the next episode about why he thinks this is such a significant issue. Kent Wildlife Trust, of course, is campaigning for the National Grid to rethink Sealink. If you want to get involved, then just search for Save Minster Marshes online. There's a petition as well with change.org that already has nearly 10,000 signatures adding your name to that list would be a help now as we draw to the end of the podcast firstly thank you for making it this far people like you make the world a better place and secondly here's the latest news The government has announced it's pulling out of a controversial treaty that currently allows fossil fuel firms to sue governments over their climate policies. The Energy Charter Treaty was originally set up to protect oil company investments in former Soviet territories back in the 1990s, and it allows them to potentially claim hundreds of millions of pounds in lost profit expectations if governments block their activities. Graham Stewart, the Energy Security and Net Zero Minister, said that the ECT is outdated and in urgent need of reform, but talks have stalled and sensible renewal looks increasingly unlikely. Remaining a member would not support our transition to cleaner, cheaper energy and could even penalise us for our world-leading efforts to deliver net zero. Green groups have praised the decision, saying that the ECT is now a dead man walking and only those profiting from the destruction of our planet will mourn its passing. First came the beavers, then came the bison. Now could the southeast be facing the return of the pine martin? Well, that's certainly the hope of the Pine Martin Restoration Project, which sees Kent and Sussex Wildlife Trusts teaming up with Wildwood and Ashdown Forest and Forestry England to look into whether the voracious little mustelids could regain a toehold here. 200 years ago, they were pretty common across the UK, but hunting and habitat loss means that Pine Martins are now only found in more remote parts of Scotland and the Welsh borders. Search for Pine Martins on the Kent Wildlife Trust website to find out more. And in what's being touted as a world first, England's biodiversity net gain law has come into force this month. It means that if a habitat is destroyed for homes or roads or other developments, equivalent habitats must be recreated on site or elsewhere and, more than that, actually see a 10% biodiversity gain rather than simply replacing what's been lost. And REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects, says it represents a major change in policy and architects will now have to design with nature. Well, that's it for Talk on the Wild Side for this episode. Please do like and subscribe and mention it to your friends and write to your MP to let them know how good it is. Special thanks to Tash Aidenyans for her essential production inputs. I'm Rob Smith. This has been a Wild Rover Media production. And until next time, do go wild in the country. Wild.